You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And my usual co-host, Prashant Parmeswaran, is currently traveling in the Asian region. So he'll be back on next week's episode, hopefully. But in the meantime, I'm really happy to welcome Franz Stefan Gadi, our colleague at The Diplomat, who is our primary editor on Defense Matters. Uh, Franz, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Ankit. Uh, it's good to be uh, back on the program. It's been a while. It has been a while for you, um, and I'm glad to have you on, actually, since um, you know it'll be a nice break from our um, Trump-related discussions over the past few weeks. Um, so I'll lay it out for listeners what's on the agenda today. So specifically, we're going to take advantage of Franz's uh, deep knowledge of military affairs to talk a bit about Japan today. Specifically, we'll talk about Jap- uh, about the country's um, threat environment in the Asia-Pacific, its defense strategy, specifically how Japan would defend itself from a potential Chinese attack. And a lot of this stuff is hypothetical, obviously. Um, I do want to emphasize that, you know, by talking about these subjects, we're not, we don't want to insinuate that war is likely or imminent, um, but this is something that simply defense analysts are expected to do, which is uh, think through the worst case scenarios. So I just wanted to lay that out there at the beginning for listeners who may not be used to, you know, hearing, hearing through these sort of realistic discussions of war and warfare. Um, And second, Franz, I think we'll also take advantage of your knowledge of um, Russian defense affairs, uh, which we don't often get to on the podcast, but I think is interesting, especially since you, you know, you see all these announcements out of Russia on all sorts of impressive defense hardware, but then you look at their defense budget and it's quite measly. I mean, it's uh, it's actually smaller than the proposed 9% increase that the Trump administration has put forward just for the United States. Um, anyways, so yeah, I'll do a I'll do a very quick um, rundown of just where tensions have been with Japan in its neighborhood recently. And you know, just to keep it really short, the two big concerns for Japan are really uh, North Korea, which has been in the news recently. We've seen more reports about Japan mulling a preemptive strike capability. Uh, that's something that is actually an old trend. I think a lot of people have been treating that as new news after North Korea's latest missile test. But that's something that Tokyo has been talking about. Um, really for decades now, but you know, you also had heard a very detailed conversation about that in 2013, I believe. Um, and the second issue is obviously China. And here you can point to tensions in the East China Sea, which uh, spiked in 2012 after Japan decided to nationalize the disputed Senkaku um, Islands, which China calls Tiaoyu and claims as well. And Japan actually did that to, present, uh, uh, to prevent the islands from falling into the hands of the nationalist former governor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishihara. Um, so, you know, that's just a brief roundup of these factors. Um, so Franz, you know, let me begin by asking you, uh, so Japan, you know, released a defense white paper in 2015, which I think is a good point to start our discussion. What, in your view, are uh, the primary threats that are driving Japan's um, thinking about defense in its neighborhood today? Well, I think uh, you did a pretty good job summarizing what uh, Japan's primary concerns are uh, in this area. And I've, I've definitely would say it's uh, North Korea and China, uh, a North Korean uh, ballistic missile attack on Japanese territory and uh, a Chinese uh, uh, invasion of one of the Japanese-held islands, um, or um, just uh, uh, maritime battles with the Chinese People's Liberation Army Mm -hmm. Navy. I think these are the two primary concerns. Of course, Russia is still on the radar as well up in the north, but I think... um, Despite the uh, Russian saber rattling um, in the Asia Pacific over the past uh, two to three years, and you know multiple bomber patrols uh, flying around the periphery of uh, Japanese uh, territory, uh, territorial airspace, I do think that it's North Korea and China. Um, just to come back to to what you said um, earlier, I, I, you know, 
uh, it's just impossible, I guess, these days to escape Trump because, um, you know, you were mentioning this debate um, around uh, preemptive strikes and you're uh, in Japan. And you're right that this has come up um, over the last couple of years and, you know, numer on numerous occasions. Uh, this time, though, I think it could be a bit different. Um, first of all, because of, uh, you know, North Korean ballistic missile capabilities uh, that have significant, uh, significantly improved. Um, you probably know this better than I do. You've been following this very, very carefully. But second, also, because we still really uh, don't know Donald Trump's Asia policy. There's some speculation about it. And, and you know, Japan uh, can no longer solely rely on the American security umbrella uh, to, uh, to uh, deter North Korea. So I think, you know, this debate could uh, gain increasing uh, momentum uh, in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, um, I've, I've, you know, it's still highly doubtful that Japan will actually acquire uh, some offensive capabilities. Although, with anything, when you talk about Japanese defense policy, um, you can be pretty sure that they have uh, latent capabilities when it comes to offensive stuff. Right, right. We're gonna are, get, yeah, uh, we're gonna get to this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this is all uh, this is all great um, fodder for discussion, though. Um, and you know, I actually neglected to mention the alliance at the beginning of the podcast. Um, obviously, we saw a lot happen on that front in the final years of the Obama administration, which I think the Japanese are very eager to carry forward, but. As you correctly said, I think there's a degree of ambiguity with this new administration's intent. Um, and you had, you know, Defense Secretary James Mattis go to Tokyo in early February and make all the right noises. You know, he reaffirmed the alliance, emphasized that Article 5, which would require the United States to come to Japan's defense, did apply to the Senkakus, becoming, uh, you know, it made him the highest level official to do that since Obama first gave that clarification in 2014. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, uh, the U.S. and Japan also um, revised their defense guidelines. And, you know, the broader context for this, Franz, is uh, in December 2012, you had Shinzo Abe, um, one of the youngest prime ministers in Japanese history, um, a, a proud nationalist who wants to see Japan become a normal country. And, you know, when we're talking about these uh, scenarios with um, and we're considering Japan's defense strategy, we're talking about things like preemptive attack. I think it's obviously important to, to be cognizant of the constitutional restrictions on what Japan can do. And Abe has been very eager to revise these. Um, there was all the talk in, in 2015 on the collective self-defense um, reinterpretation, which um, cost Abe a bit at the polls, but now he seemed to recover almost entirely. And I think the North Korean angle is really important since uh, it will have public opinion effects in Japan as well, potentially allowing Abe and the Japanese right to push forward with this normalization. Of defense. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I think Japan definitely has to step up its uh, ballistic missile defense capabilities. Um, according to some sources, Japan uh, can only deal with uh, three ballistic missiles uh, at once, right? That is uh, Japanese uh, ballistic missile defense systems. So, I mean, uh, I don't think that's sufficient considering uh, North Korea's growing arsenal. Just a side note, no. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, and you know, I should point out for listeners who maybe didn't follow the la latest North Korean test that closely. Um, and here again, you know, I have to point to Jeffrey Lewis's work um, from the Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey. Um, but you know, he showed that the the latest missile launches into the Sea of Japan were really a a military exercise from North Korea preparing for a first nuclear strike against the U.S. Air Force Base at Iwakuni in Japan. And, you know, you're right about the missile defense limitations, um, but it's not, you know, simply a question of numbers as well. There's also the question of 
efficacy and um and you know there are certain limitations to what missile defense systems like the pac-3 which japan deploys and the terminal high altitude area defense system which has got a lot of press lately for its deployment in china um there are some limitations to what these systems can actually accomplish which and you know in in these ballistic weapon scenarios um it seems like uh, you know the offense has a pretty big advantage and that um when you think about how deterrence works in this northeast asian triangle with uh China, North Korea, and the U.S.-Japan alliance, um, and the U.S.-South Korea alliance in a way as well. Um, it's it's unclear, you know, who's deterring who right now, um, especially as North <laughs> Korea continues to steadily march on. That's a, that's a point I'd made on the latest podcast, but I've just been thinking about that uh, a lot more recently. Um, but, you know, we can come back to the North Korean issue for uh, oh, sure. so why, yeah. uh, I just would, you know, maybe mm-hmm. just briefly touch on some of the more conventional aspects. Uh, okay, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, go, go ahead. Defense strategy, yeah. And so, um, as probably a lot of podcast listeners know, uh, Japan is also in the middle of overhauling its conventional uh, military capabilities. It, it really tries to move away from this uh, Cold War era, more static defense to a more um, active, uh, nimble, um, um, flexible defense by transferring some of its um, uh, uh, divisions and brigades into lighter and more mobile units. And um, I guess the principal reason behind the shift uh, in force structure is uh, to speed up the deployment of uh, Japanese combat units uh, to, the, to the East China Sea uh, in the event of a military crisis. Um, I think last week or the week before, I reported about a, a Japanese-U.S. military exercise of, uh, uh, in California, actually, where um, elements of uh, Japan's uh, so-called uh, amphibious rapid deployment brigade um, well, actually, elements that will form the nucleus of this uh, amphibious rapid deployment uh, brigade have been training with uh, the United States Marine Corps, uh, you know, trained um, island defense, um, you know, amphibious uh, warfare operations. And, and um, in comparison to what other militaries in the region are doing, though, this is a very small unit, just, um, you know, consisting probably of uh, 2,500 to 3,000 men. Um, but I think, um, you know, Overall, uh, Japan has been has been really, really pushing its capabilities, its defense capabilities uh, in the East China Sea. Um, but I do think that at this stage, uh, if you look at the military, uh, at the map and uh, Japanese military capabilities, um, it's still very, very low in comparison to what China can uh, bring to the table in reality. Right. No, yeah, this is a great segue into actually where I wanted to take the conversation, which is kind of the Japan-China balance. Um, and here, you know, I'll just kind of lay out a few facts. I mean, um, according to the latest um, military balance publication from uh, IISS, uh, you know, Japanese defense spending represents 12.9% of the Asia-Pacific's total. And uh, China actually spends three and a half times more than Japan does on defense. And obviously, you know, China is a much larger country, which is what Chinese analysts will tell you. So they, um, it's proportional to their population. Um, and, you know, here's another concern for Japan is that uh, in Asia, history matters. And there are certain perceptions that, um, you know, run across the region about um, a Japanese military buildup, which is, you know, I think, again, a bit of a misnomer. Um, Japan, in many ways, is modernizing, and it's been doing what it's done throughout its history. The only thing that's really changed in terms of a variable is obviously the the size and scope of China's ambitions in the region, which has really, I think, led um, a lot of commentators to fall into this you know, this analytical trap of really seeing everything that Japan does and everything that China does 
as uh, as part of a direct security dilemma. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, that's the best way to look at it. Uh, you know, we can also talk about some other Japanese initiatives fronts, like um, peacekeeping deployments. Uh, you had the recent uh, right. deployment of Japanese troops to South Sudan. You know, Abe has always couched Japan's defense intentions um, in the framework of being a proactive contributor to peace in the region. Um, so there's obviously, you know, lots of applications to military hardware in the region um, other right. than, other than you know, a first strike or an amphibious scenario no, in the East China I, I, Sea. I, I, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what, what I want to mention also is that, um, you know, um, one should not forget the Japan Coast Guard. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, which technically is it's, it's a civilian agency. So its budget is not really reflected in the overall defense budget. Um, and, um, you know, the Japan Coast Guard has increased its uh, capabilities uh, and dedicated, a, you know, a, a lot of a lot of money to uh, stepping up. Uh, its capabilities and adding, uh, you know, uh, bigger surveillance ships uh, for the uh, East China Sea. Because I think at the end of the day, what we'll see is, uh, in my opinion, at least, you know, over the last couple of years, is not so much a military, you know, an open military confrontation between China and Japan, but it's more, more of, you know, uh, the, the the gray zone scenario type of uh, um, activities. China is really good at, you know, the 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 blue little man, uh, as Andrew Erickson, I think, I believe, uh, called them, and I think, you know, these sorts of uh, um, um, gray zone scenarios are really thought out uh, uh, between, uh, you know, the China Coast Guard and the Japan Coast Guard. So, you know, just for the podcast listeners, um, there's some there's some good articles out there, you know, analyzing the Japan Coast Guard, and I think that's not a factor to be uh, that one should. Uh, underestimate when when trying to look at Japan's overall uh, defense posture. Although uh, the Coast Guard in Japan is technically a civilian agency, right? And you know, I, I would look at Coast Guards uh, just across the Asia Pacific. If listeners are interested in delving more into this topic, it's something that also c- carries a lot of salience. Uh, for example, in the South China Sea scenarios, um, obviously not not with relevance for Japan uh, directly, uh, but for regional states there as well. Um, Okay, Franz, do you want to, um, you know, why don't we shift domains a bit and talk a bit about Japan's new cyber defense strategy, uh, which is a great topic because you seem to have just published a report on the subject. Um, (laughs) So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Um, Sure. Um, Well, um, you know, just to be very brief, um, overall, uh, given that, um, you know, given Japan's great reliance on information and communication technology, it really surprised me that... um, its uh, cyber defenses remain fairly un- underdeveloped, um, you know, in comparison to other countries. Now, what is changing, though, over the last, has been changing over the last two years, and particularly, uh, 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 you know, since uh, Shinzo Abe uh, took office, is that I think that, you know, cyber security has really moved to the core of the country's national security policy. For a number of reasons, and I think one of the catalysts is uh, the 2020 Olympic Games that are to be held in uh, in Tokyo, and where Japan is uh, terribly afraid of embarrassing itself, um, you know, in front of the world. Um, I think also that um, in the military realm, Japan is really, really at a at a very early stage. Refuses mm-hmm. to adopt offensive cyber capabilities, offensive cyber weapons. But again, as as I mentioned previously, I'm sure Japan has a latent capability to do so. Um, but it's very reluctant to move into uh, really the military cyber competition. For example, uh, what I found out when I was doing my paper is that uh, the 2015 uh, 
guidelines for U.S. Japan uh, defense cooperation do not really specifically include cyber war or cyber security uh, when it comes to the lifting of the, you know, Japan's self-imposed ban on collective self-defense, which mm-hmm. now allows uh, Japan to defend allies uh, even when the country is not under attack itself. And also, more importantly, cyber attacks in Japan remain classified as crimes uh, and not um, as armed attacks under Japanese law. Right. So I think, you know, it has like a big, uh, you know, a long way to go. Um, also, also only in 2014 uh, created its first cyber defense unit within uh, the Jap- uh, Japanese Ministry of Defense. And it, it's only... Uh, 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 Stocked with, I think, a hundred, maybe a little bit over a hundred uh, uh, so-called cyber warriors, and it's really, really just a uh, cyber defense, no offensive um, operation. So, what I think is will be important for Japan uh, in the military realm is really deeper cooperation with uh, other countries that are more advanced in the field, such as uh, Australia, uh, Singapore, um, and particularly uh, the United States, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, so that's sort of a short sum- summary of, of what I what I wrote in my paper. Yeah, no, and you know, uh, listening to that, um, and you know, just uh, speaking to some Japanese analysts myself, I think this is an area where Japan really has felt a growing uncomfortable asymmetry with China. Um, obviously, when we talk about cyber war, one of the pioneers here in recent years have been the Chinese, and you know, you were talking about the use of gray zone tactics. Um, as we know, uh, you know, Chinese hacking is uh, can be quite subtle, and it's. Uh, and it's focused on, you know, private businesses to erode um, intellectual property advantages. Um, and, you know, in China, particularly given the state's involvement in almost all sectors of activities, um, there's obviously cases that the United States has loudly protested of intellectual property making its way via state-sponsored cyber attackers uh, into, um, you know, state-owned enterprises working on uh, defense systems. I think Japan is, you know, really worried about these um, as well as it um, continues to modernize its own defense right. capabilities. Um, if too. I can just mention one more thing anchored, yeah. uh, before we move on, um, and that is, um, you know, I don't think we should see cyber anymore as just the next domain of warfare. It is really the com- commanding height of, of warfare. And without cyber, it is impossible to conduct any kind of conventional campaign uh, in the 21st century. Also, all of it is related. I mean, you know, you read this week, uh, as I did, uh, probably, you know, this uh, New York Times article on, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, U.S. Uh, cyber attacks on North Korean uh, ballistic missile sites. And I think, you know, that's maybe a neglected, neglected aspect that perhaps we can explore at some point in the future in more detail. But it's this idea that, you know, what does, uh, you know, what do cyber capabilities really do to uh, nuclear deterrence, right? Right. Well, how, what, you know, instability does it create if you have cyber weapons, uh, you know, that can, um, you know, if, if, if people are no longer certain that, uh, well, if the military is no longer certain that it can actually launch its ballistic missiles in the event of attack. So I think all of this is more interconnected um, than, you know, than we think it is. And, and so I think it's a very, it's very important to keep in mind no, um, yeah, absolutely. That cyber, you know, cyber is actually, um, you know, one of the most important aspects when it comes to a country's national security strategy in the 21st century. Yeah, and for uh, listeners who are interested in delving in, um, obviously there is the great uh, New York Times article um, on this subject recently, but also uh, Robert Farley at The Diplomat uh, took a look at some of these questions, specifically the the nuclear deterrence angles. Um, you know, you have Cold War precedent of the U.S. and Soviet Union um, effectively trying not to degrade the other's confidence in the fact that when its missiles need to launch, uh, they will launch. Um, and that's something that this uh, these efforts into North Korea with like uh, Stuxnet-like worms uh, show that 
um, you know, might be now on the table when it comes to warfare. But I think you're right, Franz, um, you know, this uh, a cyber is really no longer distinct. And I think thinking to that re- in that regard has uh, shifted in the United States, uh, certainly. But um, I think that's going to proliferate to how other countries um, start thinking about this. And maybe in the future, we'll have you on for a more cyber focused podcast, since I know this is something you do a lot of work on. Um, so very sure. quickly, uh, you know, we're getting a little tight on time, but very quickly, do you oh. want to just uh, quickly um, just reflect on the nuclear weapons issue with Japan? Um, what um, I think uh, Vipin Narang in a recent uh, article calls it uh, insurance hedging, this idea that Japan is essentially uh, one screwdriver turn away from a nuclear deterrent. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think he's absolutely right. And, you know, I don't want to uh, think, you know, um, obviously uh, Vipin is a, is a great expert on the subject, so I don't want to, you know take too much time but I think um, he um, he um, you know he does a good job um, arguing that Japan definitely has this latent capability and you know this has been sort of known for uh, the last couple of decades and and I don't know what you know discussions uh, the United States have with Japan on the subject but I think that's also obviously something that uh, China uh, and um, North Korea is aware of, and, and you know a couple of other people in the region, countries in the region, and um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think mean, you know I, I don't think I want to add any more uh, to this at this stage. And yes, unless you have some comments. No, uh, that's it. I think the only comment that I have is this is obviously a topic that I think it's difficult to talk about without acknowledging the Trump factor, um, since if Japan. Um, ever decides Absolutely. to yeah if japan ever decides to um take that step uh which you know i think they're far off from um i think it'd be a pretty difficult um even despite abe's popular support i think the public opinion ramifications of that um might be a bit unpredictable um, but it really depends on how much of a threat the japanese people perceive um, I, I mean i think i think you know what um just to be really blunt uh, i don't think japan is going to acquire nuclear weapons unless um north korea launches a missile you know, on Japanese territory. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, if there's, that's it. You know, at the yeah. end of the day, we can talk about it, but in my opinion, you know, there's not going to be any political will unless that really occurs. Yeah, if there's a loss of life um, from yes. a North Korean attack, I think that yeah. that completely changes um, everything. I mean, it would... It would give um, it would give you know Japanese conservatives kind of um, all the ammunition they need in terms of public opinion and support to uh, absolutely yeah yeah um, but you know we hope that that scenario never comes to pass um, yes all right course. friends well um, I want to wrap up the Japan segment of this um, quickly I know there's so much more to talk about um, Japan is you know endlessly fascinating with its defense shifts but I do want to talk a bit quickly about Russia um, which is kind of on the periphery of um, our Asian focus at the diplomat but obviously Russia is a deeply significant actor uh, you know just in the context of Japan we talked about the repeated bomber flights in the East China Sea and even circumnavigations of of the Japanese major islands that the Russians seem to like to do as a move of intimidation um, but you know let's just talk a bit about um, all of this Russian military hardware that you cover for us at The Diplomat. Um, you're kind of our resident um, Russia hand. You know, Russia says that it's going to be, uh, it's going to add submarines, it's going to inaugurate new mission, um, new missiles, it has, um, you know, its fifth generation fighter project is going on, um, and that's just to name a few things. I mean, obviously there's been recent um, talk also about Russian cruise missiles that potentially violate the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, so there's all this stuff that the Russians are doing, but then you look at their defense budget, they're fairly you know, on a shoestring, their economy isn't doing great. Um, Russia is um, in a, you know, might be facing a bit of imperial overstretch currently with uh, its operations in Syria and its support for uh, separatist forces in Ukraine. So, you know, how do we how do we separate fact from fiction here? Um, what is, uh, you know, how is Russian military modernization, uh, modernization actually faring? 
Well, I mean, a lot of also what you read, I mean, uh, people who are following my pieces uh, uh, on Russia, um, I often use uh, official Russian sources. And of course, there's a little bit of uh, what the Russians are calling Maskirovska, uh, which, you know, can be roughly translated into, uh, uh, you know, deception when it comes to uh, displaying and then talking uh, about their military hardware. Um, having said that, I do think that um, uh, Russia's military capabilities have tremendously increased over the last decade. I mean, just look at the massive naval rearmament. And, uh, you know, that, of course, has been delayed. Uh, you know, many projects have been delayed, uh, you know, on, you know, numerous uh, times. But at the end, uh, Russia was able to field a new ballistic missile submarine. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, really the first new ballistic uh, missile submarine that, that Russia uh, produced since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, uh, also uh, different surface uh, warships that have been fielded have, uh, you know, from what I can tell, very, very good uh, capabilities. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them are even equipped with uh, more modern uh, supersonic surface-to-surface uh, -surface or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, ship-to-surface uh, and... Um, uh, um, you know, anti-ship missiles than the United States can field. Um, but um, overall, I think what we see is, you know, that Russia's military is definitely overstretched. Um, according to, you know, some sources, it can actually field around 30, perhaps 40,000 active combat troops at one single time. So, um, you know, just to briefly bring Japan back, in a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article about that. Uh, Russia moving uh, another division to the Kuril Islands, uh, um, you know, the disputed Kuril uh, Islands in uh, Japan's north, um, where Russia has been stepping up its uh, capabilities, uh, you know, putting on uh, new uh, anti-ship missiles and, and, and um, increasing also troop strength for a couple of years now. But um, the interesting fact about that, um, that announcement by the uh, Ministry of Defense is that uh, they used the word division. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, a lot of observers don't really, you know, probably, you know, didn't really think much about. But the fact is that um, over the last couple of years, over the last decade, uh, the, the, the basic building block of the Russian ground forces, um, you know, remains the brigade, which consists of around four to 5,000 troops. But um, the fact that increasingly when you look at Russia, uh, Russian news reports on its military talks about divisions, it really uh, goes to show you that, that they're more looking uh, towards a confrontation, a renewed confrontation with NATO rather than any, you know, small scale engagement in Asia because um, um, this, uh, you know, the a Russian division essentially is, 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 a, is, you know, a paper skeleton division, which is really only around 500 officers um, and about 100 enlisted men. And only in the event of conflict would, um, you know, the division go up to full strength. And, um, you know, it, 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 that's just for me an indication that a lot of what you see is really, you know, going back to this idea of Maskirovska, uh, you know, Russia is really uh, portraying itself as this great military power and it has, you know, uh, great capabilities. But if you look closely, uh, it, you know, it is really uh, in some, on some occasions more of a, a paper tiger than you would think. Having said that, um, what you just, you know, mentioned also, uh, you know, Russia has indeed embarked in this, you know, military modernization program over the last, um, over the last decade, and it has, you know, yielded some impressive results. Now, the 
problem that Russia traditionally had is maintenance of this new military hardware. Mm -hmm. And we're not really sure, for example, how many of its submarines are actually operational. Right. Although some NATO uh, you know, reports indicate that it has stepped up its submarine patrols in the Atlantic and in the Pacific region. Um, the Russia's Pacific fleet has also increased in size. Um, but, you know, when it comes to maintenance, uh, you know, maintenance and, and, and really, uh, you know, long-term deployment um, capabilities, you know, it, it's very difficult to assess that. Right. I think that was a I think that was a really good uh, reality check overall on uh, on this topic. Um, and we'll see, you know, how things play out from here, particularly with uh, the fact that Russia is already so overstretched. I mean, the Trump administration is making a really big point of having NATO states hit that 2% threshold, uh, which could lead to a lot of essentially deadweight loss military spending across Europe to meet that goal. And um, depending on how that's perceived in Russia, I think, you know, um, we might see uh, the Kremlin make some unfortunate choices with its own um, military spending. Right. Um, I mean, the one thing I want to mention, though, is, you know, one should never make the mistake to underestimate the Russian military historically, okay. you know. Okay. That's, um, you, know, that's from, good um, you know, it's, it, you know, time and again, Western analysts or Western statesmen uh, or statesmen and, 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 you know, people in Asia have underestimated the resilience of, of the Russian military. And, you know, it's, it's a comeback power in many ways, you know, it, it, you know, it might screw up a lot at the beginning of the conflict, but it, it you know, it, it's really, really, uh, you know, it's really, really resilient uh, when it comes to, to, you know, long-term military conflict, in my opinion. So I, I do think that's something that we should keep in mind just from a historical perspective. Absolutely. No, that's, uh, that's definitely important, Franz. Um, anyways, I think we're out of time, uh, but I really want to thank you for coming on and talking over these subjects today, Franz. I had a I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Ankit. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and we'll uh, hope to have you back on, um, definitely to talk cyber, um, but also, you know, more broadly defense. I think we could also maybe discuss some recent defense developments in South Asia um, in the future as well, which I know you watch closely. Franz was actually um, embedded for us for a while from the diplomat in Afghanistan, which we had him on to discuss on a recent episode. So if you're interested in hearing more of Franz, I'd recommend go checking out that uh, older episode of the podcast. Um, but with that said, um, thanks for listening today. And if you haven't already, do subscribe to the show so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have been a subscriber but you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, please do that. It really helps the podcast grow. And if you have anything you'd like to see discussed on the show that you haven't yet, um, definitely just feel free to drop me an email or contact me on Twitter. And um, um, I'm sure I'll see what you're requesting and we'll try to include it on the agenda for future episodes. Thanks a lot for listening today.